I'm Ben Shaw, and you're listening to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. My guest this week is Marcus Buchonin, who sailed in Alberg 30 from San Francisco to Hawaii, but that was only a small leg of his seven and a half year, so far, non-motorized circumnavigation of the planet. Today's show is sponsored by Blue Heron Batteries. Are you thinking about installing lithium batteries on your boat? There are lots of advantages, including less weight, faster charging times, more usable power, and longer lifespans compared with other types of batteries. But understanding all the ins and outs of installing lithium can be a challenge, and I know that from experience, which is exactly what drew me to Blue Heron Battery and Hank George. Blue Heron Batteries are made with high-quality cells. They come with a great warranty, provide Bluetooth access to numerous parameters, and are available at an exceptional price. Blue Heron was recommended to me by multiple cruisers who I trust a great deal, and Hank really knows his stuff. He helped me determine what I needed for my boat in a very helpful and straightforward manner. My new Blue Heron batteries just arrived, and I'm excited to share with you how the install goes. You can find out more and order your batteries at blueheronbattery.com. This week's show is also hosted by Svensson's Marine and their Spring Fling Boat Show, which is coming up on April 15th and 16th in Alameda. This year's show is even bigger than the last, with more exhibitors, great food, and some great seminars. There will be raffle giveaways all day long and special deals on boating and sailing gear, and I'm planning on being there on the 15th, so I hope to see you there. Get your free tickets online and claim a show swag bag at springflingboatshow.com. That's springflingboatshow.com. Dot com, all one word. I'll see you there. And a quick shout out to the new Patreon patron, Archie of SB Titania, who joined the crew last week. If you enjoy these interviews, you can head over to patreon.com slash out the gate. And for a small monthly donation, support what I do and get special benefits. As I mentioned up top, Marcus Buchonin has been traveling the world for over seven years. He's sailed, he's biked, he's canoed, he's kayaked, he's stand-up paddleboarded, and he's pogo-sticked his way across the globe. What he hasn't done is traveled anywhere by motorized vehicle. Now, I was introduced to Marcus by a mutual sailing friend, and I was really excited to catch up with him just after his return to North America to hear about his amazing adventures and what inspired him to take this epic journey. Let's go. So I'm Marcus Pukunen, uh, originally from Toronto, Canada, but uh, I'd say I'm based out in Tofino, British Columbia on the West Coast. And uh, I left Toronto in a canoe seven and a half years ago with the goal to get around the world without ever using motorized transportation. And I have uh, used about, I don't know, 15 to 20 different types of transportation. And I haven't, haven't used a, a motor in seven and a half years to get uh, all the way around back to 
Now I'm currently in Florida. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. That is amazing. What was the inspiration for this? It came from a number of different different places. One was just uh, a desire to live my most honest and uh, true I mean, life, I guess. And so uh, when I came up with the idea, I was fighting forest fires in British Columbia. And it's great work, you know, very rewarding work, manual labor outside, walking around in the forest. Not as dangerous as people think it is. In some places, I think, are more dangerous in the States for firefighting, but fires tend to burn a bit more slow and controllable up in BC. Um, so, yeah, it was great work, and it enabled me to travel in the off-season, work summers, travel in the off-season. And so I traveled quite extensively through Central and South America ever since I left high school. And, uh, yeah, I basically, I wouldn't say I was getting travel and guilt, but I was seeing how our lives in, you know, the developed world have pretty big impact in the rest of the world. And we're sort of removed from that. And, um, even just within our own communities and our own countries, you can see how, what we purchase influences the world around us. And so I guess I was inspired to to work in uh, social and environmental justice. And, uh, but then I started looking into that realm and I, I realized I had no interest in sitting in an office all day, uh, writing letters to the government. And so I was basically asked myself like how I could combine everything I'm passionate about uh, into like my dream job. And, um, at the time, uh, like I said, I was fighting forest fires, but which was a great job. But if, if I wanted to make a difference in that realm, I would have had to move into the office outside, out of the forest. And so that was just not going to happen. And uh, towards the end of that fire season, um, my sister told me she was pregnant. So I had a niece on the way. And so I was thinking about her future. Then my dad called me up and told me he had two weeks to live. He had a rare form of acute myeloid leukemia. And uh, so I left the fire season early to go back to see my dad. And on the flight home to see him, I was just sort of brainstorm my love of travel, my love of being outdoors, being active, being athletic and sporty, and um, how I could combine that with the... environmental social justice work and uh, so Roots of Change was born and basically decided I would do something big and crazy and use that attention and and my documentary sort of film work and photography to raise support for people doing good work around the world. That's that's basically how Roots of Change was formed and that was the inspiration. It's basically another way of putting it. I asked myself uh, what would I want to be doing with my life if I found out that I was only given two weeks to live? You know, how could I, what could I be doing that I would have no regrets? Yeah. You know, and and uh, so this was sort of like my most honest answer to that question. Yeah, I mean, at the time I was ready to start it right away, but of course I had no money or not a lot of money. And I had, I took some advice from people once I did finally share with people and they're like, oh, you need this, you need that more experience, you need more money, you need sponsors, blah, 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 blah. 
it ended up being seven years before I finally started the trip. Oh, wow. Okay. I wouldn't say I procrastinated for seven years. I did work towards it. And that is really sort of how it sort of, yeah, I think I just got more respect from my community. They could see that I, I could actually pull something like this off. And so it didn't actually uh, equate to getting sponsors, though, uh, like big, big money sponsors, I should say, or corporate sponsors. It just uh, my community really believed in me. And I went back to school, studied documentary filmmaking. Through that school, I made a couple short films, one that was almost like a trailer for this trip. I stand up paddleboarded from Vancouver to Vancouver Island, which is about a 40-mile paddle. Mm. And uh, I did that to raise uh, support for a local organization that was working to clean up the, the waters there, the Georgia Strait waters. And then because I made that film, uh, when I started looking at uh, how to get across the Pacific Ocean, Originally, my plan was to do this strictly human-powered, so that means you don't even sail. And so I was looking at ocean rowboats, and I uh, got in touch with some ocean rowers in my neighborhood. They had seen this video that I made, stand-up paddleboarder, and they're like, oh, he can probably row. I had no rowing experience whatsoever, but I was like, sure, yeah, you know, I could, I'd, I'd love to help you out if you guys need help. And then eventually they... Uh, they needed help rowing around Vancouver Island, so I rode with them around Vancouver Island. That was about a 21-day trip in an ocean rowboat. And they were like, one of the guys was a gold medal Olympian rower, and the other two guys had rowed in college. I had zero rowing experience, but ocean rowing is a messy rowing. It's nothing like flat water rowing. So in a way, I think that was actually helpful, more beneficial for me because I didn't, never tried to make the perfect stroke. Like Ocean rowing is more like drunken rowing so <laughs> it, it, it was good it paid off and one of those guys who was a flatwater rower on that ocean trip decided the ocean rowing was not for him and these guys had been planning four years for a row ocean row across the atlantic ocean they you know raised one hundred fifty thousand dollars or something like that and you know and then everything organized and they're like hey do you want to row across the atlantic ocean with us <laughs> I was like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and uh, so I guess six months later, I found myself in Dakar, Senegal. And there was four of us. And we uh, were attempting to be the first people to row from Africa to North America, from Dakar, Senegal to Miami. And we would row. We left Dakar. And we, in 2000, that was 2013 that we left. Two people would row and two people would sleep. Uh, in a schedule of one, two, or four hours. Roll for four hours, sleep for four hours, roll for two hours, sleep for two hours. Uh, first few weeks were just absolute torture. I <laughs> imagine. Absolute crazy. But then the body does adapt. So, like, it's amazing how the body adapts. And, you know, we had good food. And, uh, I was quite happy out there. Uh, other guys on the crew were varying degrees of, of comfort and happiness, but... We ended up uh, having a fluke, little rogue wave catch us with our cabin door open after 72 days out there. We rode about 3,000 miles. We were 400 miles north of, uh, of Puerto Rico, right on the edge of the Bermuda Triangle. And we, we, we flipped with a, just a fluke little wave, nothing too crazy. And because the cabin door was open, the boat didn't roll back. And so we turned on our beacons and Hmm. Got picked up by the nearest ship. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
but that was previous to this trip that I'm on now. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but an adventure nonetheless. Quick question. How long were you sitting on the upturned boat before a ship came by? Uh, so we did have a life raft. So we deployed the life raft, but we, we were sitting on the boat for a bit longer than, uh, because we tried to, to flip it back over, tide lines all over it, and also just wanted to get stuff out of the boat. Unfortunately, I, I couldn't find the camera, which I really wanted. Uh, you know, that was the, the, the like most essential piece of any making that film, was mm-hmm. getting a camera on it. Um, but it was, we were trying to do that, and then I guess right around that time, I think it was only four or five hours, a Coast Guard plane was flying overhead. You know, the, the U.S. Coast Guard is quite active all throughout that area in between Puerto Rico. They have a base in the Bahamas and their bases in Florida. So I think they had a training flight up anyways. They were just cruising around. So they flew over ahead of us until, uh, until a ship picked us up 12 hours later. And so we actually didn't spend the night out there. We, we flipped first thing in the morning, got picked up right at sunset. And it was a giant car-carrying ship. Wow. So it was this massive thing. It almost ran us over, and then it drifted by us a mile before it backed back up, and finally had to climb up this like. So t- talk a little bit about ladder. yeah. Talk a little bit about the logistics of that. How did you get from a life raft to the ladder? Uh, they threw ropes down, so we caught a rope, and then they had a ladder sort of hanging off the side of the ship, and we sort of pulled us over to the where the ladder was to climb up the ladder I think it was about 30 or 45 feet they were thinking we were like probably a lot more exhausted and in rougher shape but we were all pretty healthy and well rested it wasn't wasn't that bad so you all probably could have climbed up that ladder with just your arms after all the rowing you've been doing (laughs) yeah well well, if anything the the lack of legs like lack of walking was the challenging thing I mean, we, obviously, we had sliding seats on the rowboats. We were using some leg muscles, but mm-hmm. not, no, no real calf muscles. So uh, it was, it was just bizarre because we climbed up that ladder and then stepped into a parking lot. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and the boat, you know, it's this giant ship, but it's still moving. So it was actually a, it was a weird transition, but there was still movement of it. So it didn't feel too crazy. Until we did get to land, and then, yeah, we had sea legs for a while, for sure. Where was that land? Where was the ship headed? Uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Okay, so not too far afield from where you were headed. Uh, I mean, yeah, we were going to Miami, but yeah, San Juan is where we ended up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's quite an adventure. So, was it that mishap that made you say, mm, maybe not rowing? Because you since decided to not do it all just human powered, but use sailing as one of your modes of transport. I was always still open to rowing and I, and I almost rowed across the Indian Ocean on this trip. It was a matter of mostly funding and the, 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 the money that it takes to get an ocean rowboat and to fund one of those trips. It just wasn't in my budget and I didn't want to spend multiple years trying to find the money to get in an ocean rowboat, which I mean, they say, the guys who row it, like, they, they'll say, oh, I'm going human power across the ocean, I'm going human power around the world. But it's sort of a bunch of baloney because you don't row without the help of the wind and the currents across an ocean. Sure. Um, 
you know, it's, it's, you need to be in the trade lanes and you need to be, yeah, the wind pushes you where. Well, it's kind of like saying riding a bike down a hill is, you know. It's human power. It's human power. Yeah, yeah. It's a wheel power, but yeah. But it's even more so, I'd say, um, you know, because at least you got to get the bike up to the top of the hill, but. Yeah. uh, But yeah. I mean, there, there's been some crazy ocean roads that are you know, over 300 days, and they definitely have to struggle when you're crossing the equator or something. You have to struggle, and the, the little bit of you know mile or two miles an hour that you can do rowing, it, it it does make a difference. But I just wasn't attached to being so strict about not using a sail, and I think wind power is wonderful. So in the end, it was just, it was just a money thing and a timing thing, but. When I started the trip, I, I like in Toronto, I, I didn't know how I was going to get across the Pacific Ocean, so I was open to anything. I would have happily jumped in an ocean rowboat, and I did. That was uh, briefly on the table, but because I've done an ocean row, there's that community sort of randomly picks up people here and there because they people fall out or they need help. But but in the end, uh, two weeks into the trip, a friend of a friend uh, called me up. Two weeks into this roots of change trip right after I had left Toronto and, and he was planning to sail from uh, San Francisco to Hawaii. He's like, Hey, you want to sail? With me? I'm like, sure. And he's like, okay, meet me in eight months in San Francisco and we'll head to Hawaii and Asia. <laughs> That's so cool. What yeah. kind of boat was it? That was an Allbird 30. Yeah. Well, before we get to the sailing, mm-hmm. I, I want to get both a really quick overview of where you've been so far. But before we do that, even, I'm really curious, what are all the different modes of transport that you have used? The most fun that I've had with that happened in Canada because it, I don't know, it just, it just, I don't know, it lined up for some one reason or another. I guess there's more crazies in Canada with different forms of transportation <laughs> and I had some more support. So yeah, I started in the canoe, uh, and yeah, canoed up through the Great Lakes. And then when I got to Lake Superior, just before Lake Superior, I uh, met a doctor who thought I shouldn't be canoeing solo across Lake Superior. So he gave me a Hobie Trimaran, Adventure Island Trimaran. How fun. It's one of those real yellow boats that you can pedal yeah. with your feet and paddle um, and sail. Uh, it doesn't do any of those things really well, but <laughs> it worked. <laughs> Uh, and of course, sure enough, when I got on Superior, I had like three days of just dead calm, flat weather, which would have been perfect for canoeing, but was rather uncomfortable pedaling that boat. So did some minor knee damage on that thing. Huh. Uh, and then another friend met me with a different canoe on the north side of Lake Superior, and we paddled together to Thunder Bay. I met a, a paraplegic guy earlier on in the trip and said, oh, you have to take my hand cycle. And so he he gave me his uh, sort of fast hand cycle and I hand cycled from Thunder Bay to Winnipeg. Wow. Uh, which is, I think, is around 600 miles or so. And then I pogo sticked through Winnipeg. <laughs> <laughs> I saw some video of that on your website. That's awesome. Yeah, that was probably you know, my most enjoyable motor transportation i thought it was going to be painful and that i would have to stop because of injury or something but 
something about it just put a smile on my face and i was just able to keep on hopping the hand cycle is a similar motion to the mm. motion of moving a pogo stick forward i did six miles in uh, about five hours that's great so the pogo sticks are actually also one of the only things that was sponsored to me on the trip well, american company called Flybar. they make really good quality pogo sticks nice uh, and then yeah i met a guy in winnipeg who had Humbent tricycle, and so I tricycled across the prairies, 1,100-1,200 miles to the Rockies. I got a couple snowfalls there because this was in October, and then when I got to the Rockies, there was full snow on the ground, and so I transitioned onto skis, backcountry touring skis, and I skied across British Columbia to Vancouver. Briefly went down a river on a raft which was like ice on either side of the river that was definitely one of the scarier things because i had no experience rafting let alone rafting with ice dams across the river wow and he, and he was only with me for the first two days and then like he left me and we, and we had no issues those first two days on the river but then he left me because he had to go back to work so i was alone with the raft and of course like two miles downstream i run into a, a dam like uh, ice right across the river what do you and do so, I rode as hard as I could to the side, and unfortunately, the side was an island, and so then I was <laughs> I was stuck on this island, and I had to deflate the whole raft, take it all apart, take all the gear off, which is not light, and carry it all across the island, reinflate it, put all the gear back on it, and then row it to the other side of the shore. I had somebody come and bring me a bicycle, and I bicycled in the town to where I was able to start skiing again. I had to kayak across a couple lakes just to make the ski more direct and just met people who had boats to do that. The skiing was, it was beautiful, but it was also some of the toughest. I, I didn't have a tent, so I was going very lightweight, just a 30 liter backpack on my, on my back. And so I had a little baby sack and a shovel. I'd shovel out under a tree, light a fire, stay warm that way and inside the baby sack i was warm enough and then you made your way south eventually towards san francisco right when i got off the skis i had to walk a little bit because the snow melt was higher than expected and so then i walked downhill and like eight people who had planned this canoe and stand-up paddleboard trip down the fraser river into vancouver it's just a few-day trip and then a friend of mine tandem kayaks to vancouver island and I bicycled, I briefly stand-up paddleboarded down a river, and my sister joined me for a canoe for the last two days into Tofino, which is my home base. And then I bicycled down the island, got in a, a Whitehall Spirit rowing boat, and we rode uh, with another friend, I rode to Washington State, and then bicycled down the coast of San Francisco and got on the Albert 30. Uh, but when my buddy wanted to leave from San Francisco, there was very little wind, so he had to motor. And of course, I'm I never motor, so I stand up paddleboarded under the Golden Gate Bridge until we found some wind, and then I hopped on the boat. <laughs> That's great. Where'd you guys depart from in the bay? Sausalito, is that yeah? And on the north side mm -hmm. of the harbor. Yeah, sure. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. We were anchored out just right out there. So. Yeah, yeah, anchored in Richardson Bay. And then you headed out from there. So how far out did you have to paddle before the wind picked up? Not far. I mean, like, I think before we had cleared the headlands there, there was, there was enough wind to sail. 
That's great. And you just pulled the paddleboard on board? Yeah, yeah. And then uh, and then we pretty much immediately lost wind, and we went and anchored in, I'm looking at the name of the bay there, Rodeo Beach? Rodeo Cove? Does that make sense? Yeah, Ro- Rodeo, Rodeo Cove. Yeah, that's right up Rodeo around. Cove. Yep. Yeah, it might have been Rodeo Cove that we anchored in. I don't really remember, but we were just there for a night waiting for the wind, and then picked up the sail, the wind picked up, and we managed to get, I don't know, maybe 15 miles closer towards Hawaii, and then the, the wind died down again, and we were drifting around in the shipping lanes, which was not a nice night. Had you sailed before? Yeah, I had sailed a Sonic 27 uh, on Lake Ontario with my dad. He had a Sonic 27, which I think is very similar to a CNC 27. I'm not even sure. I don't I don't. It's a long time, but I was basically just sailing it as a little kid. I never sailed the boat myself, really. So I, did, I knew how to sail. I had sailed some little dinghies and, uh, you know, like a laser here and there, some other small boats, but never raced and never really knew properly how to, to sail. But I was comfortable sailing. And how was that passage to Hawaii? How long did it take you guys? Uh, it was it was pretty good, pretty smooth. Twenty five days. We had some rough weather, and we tested out the sea anchor. Tried to use the party bridle technique, which did not work. It just kept we kept on tacking over, and it got stuck in our uh, under our boat a couple of times. So I don't know. We probably didn't have strong enough wind or something. Or and different boats handle differently on the. Yeah, I know Lynn and Larry Party are, are big fans of the the sea anchor with the with the bridle too. So we tried that bridle thing. Yeah, it didn't work for us. But other than that, it was, you know, just smooth trade wind sailing. A bit rolly because we were going straight downwind quite a bit. And we had, you know, we were trying different combinations like wing on wing, uh, you know, stuff like that. But it, yeah, it was, it was pretty smooth. I'm assuming you had some solar or other alternative yeah. power than running the engine? We never ran the engine. Dave was, well, the guy I was sailing with, he was pretty. Pretty cool with that. Pretty comfortable without ever running the engine, and we didn't have we had no refrigeration. Yeah, there wasn't even running water on that boat. But when we did get to Hilo, he wasn't super comfortable about sailing into the harbor there, so I had to hop off again and board <laughs> into Hawaii. I love it. I love it. <laughs> you make your in- entrance. You could just pretend you uh, paddleboarded the whole way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was watching one of your great videos on your website. Well, let, let's plug your website while while I mention it. What where do people go to uh, follow your journey? Roots of Change or Routes of Change R O U T E S of Change dot org. That same name is on all the social media at Roots of Change on YouTube or Instagram, Facebook, and all that. Cool. There's a tracker on the website. Follow the whole route around the world. There, it's a pretty nice little map. One of those videos, you mentioned you got to Hawaii and then things really went south. <laughs> what happened? It's funny that you use that word. It's like, <laughs> well, going south, is a, going south seems like a good thing to me. <laughs> I actually debated should I use that word because maybe you wanted to go south. Things went not well. <laughs> well, yeah, the boat the boat went south without me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, the guy who owned the boat, he, he he just decided he didn't want the pressure of uh, trying to get me to Asia. He just wanted to sail solo and go and live slowly in the Pacific Islands. And so he, he marooned me. 
Which, you know, there's worse places to be marooned. It's pretty, pretty ideal. Worst places but... to be marooned, but a hard place to be marooned if you want to get someplace on, yeah, under your own uh, power. Motor. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, there was a Pacific Ocean rowing race going from San Francisco that arrived in July. So there, all these rowboats showed up. And it like, would have been perfect. And I was asking, you know, but they were all claimed or they all have to get shipped back somewhere or something uh. or other. But there was close to being some leads there, but it wasn't working out, which I'm okay. I was also, but there wasn't many boats for sale. And there were very few people, well, there's nobody looking for crew to sail onwards, which I thought was a bit surprising. I thought there'd be more people, you know, doing the sail that we had just done. Yeah, I guess a lot of people sail out to Hawaii and then back. And if yeah. they're going onwards, they Hawaii's a little out of the way. Although the North Pacific, I mean, it has some of the best cruising in the world there if you're willing to do another long sail to get to the Marshall Islands. And then you have Micronesia. Micronesia is you know, spectacular. Very few cruisers. But I think that's probably what deters a lot of the cruisers because they want to be in these big cruising communities and go where everybody else goes. But... Micronesia, I mean, you rock up at an atoll and you're the only boat there, and it's just, you know, spectacular. Sounds pretty ideal to me. Yeah. So, so Dave so Dave sailed south, and uh, he went to Kiribati. He had a bad experience down there, and they, they tried to bribe him. They took his passport because he hadn't cleared properly out of the U.S. Because some countries don't require you to, and the U.S. doesn't really care usually. But if you go to a country that wants your clearance, then you're in a tough situation. So he ended up uh, just taking off and sailing back up to Hawaii, which is a pretty tough sail, you know, more of an upwind sail. And as he was doing that, he, he decided that he would uh, offer me the boat, basically rent the boat to me for a very cheap price, but basically lend me the boat. So he wow. gave me the boat, gave me, gave me uh, Dolce, is the name of her, the Albert 30. And I sailed it solo. My first solo ocean sail was from Hawaii to the Marshall Islands, and that was a 21-day sail. That's a big chunk of passage to bite off uh, for your first solo sail. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was a bit nervous going into it, for sure. <laughs> but to tell you the truth, the, moment, the thing I was most afraid of is, is leaving the harbor because I had to do that under sail power. So oh. you know, that's where all the that's where all the land is, all the boats, and you know. And that's that's where the stuff to hit is. Yeah. Yeah. Once I once I left Hawaii, it was like you know, I can go to sleep now. <laughs> <laughs> and then the fear starts building about what I'm going to do when I tap this tack into this atoll on the other side that I've never been to. And you have just a little bit of time alone to think about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the meantime, it's just you know you just have to make sure you reef the boat when you need to, and yeah, basically the the manual wind vane steers the boat. It's, open ocean sailing is a lot easier, I think, than most people think. Well, how did you manage the sleep though? Because that is one tricky part. Did you have AIS, or how did you yeah, keep a lookout? Yeah. I had AIS, and for me, that's like an essential thing if you're gonna. Get a good night's sleep on your solo and eat an AIS. Yeah. Um, that was when I when I got the boat that I just got off of. Now that was the first thing I got. I could sleep eight hours a night. I could sleep right through the night sometimes. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing out there in the, out in there in the middle. Because if you're outer shipping lanes, 
nobody's fishing that far from shore. Even if you were on watch, you're not going to be staring forward all the time. I mean, usually when I was on watch on the sail from San Francisco to Hawaii, I'd be looking backwards because that's where the comfortable seat was <laughs> in the cockpit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd keep my head up every 10 minutes or 20 minutes, but there's nothing ever there. I have never, I think, had to, well, no, that's not true. Maybe like in 20,000 miles or something, I've had to alter my course to avoid a ship a handful of times. Only takes once, though. It does. It does only take once. And obviously, the second I'm close to land, I, I start losing sleep and I have to pay attention. Uh, but that's when it becomes more dangerous. You know, like, I think people forget that you're, you know, you want to be well rested when when you do get close to shore or when you are in those shipping lanes or when, you know, a bad storm hits. Because if you're tired, I hear about these guys who, you know, they'll do a passage and they're up every 20 minutes. They're sleeping every 20 minutes, 20 minutes on. And, you know, they start making big mistakes yeah. because they just have a lack of sleep. I think it's it's actually more responsible to get good sleep when you, when you can safely do it out there. And AIS, I think, is you know one of the most valuable tools for that purpose. How many different sailing vessels have you been on for this You've been gone seven years now? Seven and a half years. Seven and yeah. a half years. So I, I had the I took the Albert well also if you include the Hobie Trimaran on Lake Superior. And then the Albert thirty was San Francisco, Hawaii. That was with Dave. And then I took it to Marshall Islands, through Micronesia, Palau, Philippines, to Hong Kong. Got off of it in Hong Kong. Bicycle through Asia for a long time. And then eventually I got I'd get a kayak over to Sumatra and I, and I took a flat bottom canoe down the Mekong River for a bit. Wow. Uh, but, but eventually I actually got, I was searching for a boat to continue sailing over to India. I really wanted to get up into the Himalayas. And I found a boat. A boat was given to me, but it was at a marina on Borneo, which is a big island. Sure. I was trying to struggling to find a way to get over there. Eventually a friend close to where I was staying, uh, he he bought a boat in Thailand, uh, uh, West Sail 32, beautiful boat. Yeah. <laughs> he had no ocean sailing experience, so he, he's like, hey, you know, if you help me sail it, uh, we can sail together to Borneo, and then I'll sail it back over to Malaysia. You can get your boat in Borneo. And so I was on that for oh, a little over a week, but he ran out of time. He had to go back to work, and so <clears throat> we just sailed right back where we came from in Thailand. Oh, man. And then the border, the land border finally opened up between Myanmar and India. And so I was able to get my bicycle over to India. And then lockdown happened. And then yeah, I was going at that point. The plan was to row with this Latvian guy who had recently rowed across the Pacific Ocean. He's doing a human-powered circumnavigation. He sort of does it in legs, though, so he flies back and forth from Latvia to wherever he is. And he invited me to row across the Indian Ocean. Uh, but then COVID hit and that changed his plans. He couldn't really do it uh, at the time that we had planned. And so I searched and searched and searched. And in India, a land of, you know, a billion and a half people and a hundred thousand millionaires, there's one boat for sale. <laughs> and it was like a 70 foot maxi yacht that would not work for me. And then I finally, like, I found like some Facebook group at some marina in the South. 20-year-old Australian kid had sailed this Trapper, uh, Trapper 500 to India. 
because of lockdown, he got stuck when he went back home to Australia. So I bicycled 3,000 K back down to the south of India and I, I got the boat. Samudra, she's, so she's a Trapper 500, which is the same as a CNC 27. And yeah, so I sailed that to here, to Florida. <laughs> wow. So we were initially going to speak yesterday, but when I gave you a call, you were still in the midst of a long day of paddling. So yeah. what's, where are you right now? Um, where's the boat? Yeah. And, and where, what's your plan from here? Yeah, so do you want me to quickly tell you the, the path I took on the sailboat? Yeah, do. Yeah, so so I bought it in the south of India. My first sail on that boat, because I couldn't sail in the harbor in India. I couldn't lift it out. Of, I couldn't even lift the boat out of the water to see what it looked like. I did like four months of work on the boat. I bought it for $6,000. My first sail ended up being a 40-day sail to the Seychelles. Wow, <laughs> that's quite a shakedown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's only a 1,500-mile sail, but there was just no wind because of the work that I had to get done in India. I got delayed, so I was pushing the, the, the season, and yeah, there was just no wind. I've never seen the ocean so flat. Yeah. Uh, and I, I was, my girlfriend was waiting for me in the Seychelles. Oh, that makes it even more painful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyways, yeah, it was a, it was a crazy sail. Lots, lots, of, lots of stories there, too, but... Eventually, we sailed together to Tanzania and then down through the Mozambique Channel and around and to South Africa. My girlfriend never got over a seasickness, so I went solo from South Africa to St. Helena, which is in the middle of the South Atlantic, and then to Brazil, up the coast of Brazil, Trinidad, a few stops in the Caribbean, and then just recently up through the Bahamas to uh, Fort Pierce, where I first made land. Uh, it was just a little over a week ago. The next morning, my uh, sister and nieces, who I hadn't seen since I rode away from Vancouver Island seven years ago. Oh, my gosh. Uh, they, they joined me for the last 10-mile sail up the ICW to Bureau Beach. How wonderful. And, yeah, it was, it was super special. And, I mean, a lot of people maybe who, who aren't don't have a lot of sailing experience or ocean crossing experience it, may have this dreamy idea of it and for sure it can be dreamy at times but there's there's a whole lot of stress involved mm -hmm. in sailing especially a small boat by yourself oh yeah and i think when i when i entered that fort pierce right right actually right before the fort pierce event i was thinking about talking to customs which funny enough i never had to do they just sent me a text saying welcome to the u.s and I was thinking about explaining my trip to the customs. It's like, I sailed this boat here from India. And I just started bawling tears, just crying so much. <laughs> I just like let out so much emotion. My sister would laugh her head off when, when she heard that story because she was like, oh, it wasn't about eating us. It was about talking to customs. <laughs> just thinking about the fact that I had sailed the boat from India and, and that I was about to be done. You know, I was, that was like, that was my last yeah. few miles on the open ocean before you hit north america again yeah before i hit north america too which uh, that itself didn't seem like too much of a milestone it has like people have been talking about that like oh back in north america but for me it was way more just being off the ocean uh, and off of the boat and yeah and then yeah and then the next morning sister sailed with me and we sailed it up to bureau the reason i chose bureau is because there's a youth sailing foundation there 
And when I sent out emails looking who I could donate the boat to, they, they responded. And so I just decided to give them the boat. They actually teach uh, youth mostly in smaller, like optimists and some hobbies and stuff like that. So they didn't really have, they were just going to sell the bigger boat, but they ended up donating it to another sailing organization called, uh, called Hire Sailing Adventures. And so they, they actually take teenagers out on similar sort of cruising boats like mine and some some big bigger and they, I think they have six or seven boats and they're sailing around all the time they, they do trips around the coast of Florida and everything so that is so cool uh, so Samudra has found a great home and somebody from that organization uh, gave me a stand-up paddleboard so I uh, just two days ago left Vero Beach on the stand-up paddleboard and first day on the paddleboard I went 22 miles <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, I was like, why am I doing this? Why? It's, I think it's just because I made a plan to meet somebody who offered me a place to stay. Who I had met them in week two of the journey uh, up up on Lake Ontario on the Trent Severn Waterway. Basically, they were doing the Great Circle route. Yeah, and, which is uh, just for people who don't know, is uh, the East Coast and then through the Erie Canal and then down the rivers down to the what uh, Mobile Bay. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple. You can go down the Mississippi most of the way, or you can go into the Tennessee, I think. Uh, but yeah, and then and then you do the complete the loop. Yeah. And he's done it a few times in this tiny little 14-foot uh, motor cabin thing. Yeah, smaller than most people do it in, but he loves it because it's just, yeah, nice and simple. That's, that's, uh, that's why I made my first day fairly tough, and then I, I took a break yesterday or the day before yesterday i took a break at his place beautiful place honest john's fish camp uh nice. creek and uh and then the wind the wind was favorable the next day so i left and i was thinking okay because i have favorable wind that that's going to be an issue here more than i was expecting i'm going to put in a long day but sort of halfway through the, through the day i found out that a couple uh young grom surfers from my hometown back in in Canada were here at a surf competition. So I was like, oh, I should go and say hello. And then another friend I met in Tobago happened to be here. He's like, oh, I got a place for you to stay. So come on down. And it's like, okay, I guess I'll come all the way. And then it ended up being a 15 hour day. Uh, at the end of the day, I was paddling and I'd be like, oh wait, I'm, I'm, I should look where I'm going. Like, I, I should stay awake. <laughs> oh, gosh. I had one of those moments where I felt like I had briefly fallen asleep while paddling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad I was able to catch you on a lay day when you've gotten some yeah, rest. So, yeah, so so good. Plan to take the paddle up Savannah, up, possibly up the Savannah River to the trailhead of the Appalachian Trail, hike the Appalachian Trail up to the Hudson River, and then paddle up the Hudson River through the Erie Canal. Into Lake Ontario, back to Toronto, and plan is to be uh, back in Toronto in July to call it a trip. What a trip it's been! That is fantastic! Wow! <laughs> and one last question: How have you financed this as you've gone along? Yeah, so I briefly mentioned that I don't have any like big corporate sponsors or anything like that. I'm I'm crowdfunded, basically community funded. Uh, just uh, mostly by people who I've met in my life and or met along the way and a little bit of YouTube income now also but uh, I've pre-sold it well, I, I want to say I've sold it but I 
in res- in return for the crowdfunding and the people's support, I've offered them the book and the film that when I've done the trip, I'll probably spend a couple of years making, writing the, writing the book and editing the film. Do you have a title yet? Uh, you know, I think it'll be hard not to call it Roads of Change. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Well, we'll look for it. That's yeah. exciting. I'll let you know. <laughs> Thanks again so much for talking to us. This has really been a pleasure to uh, live a little vicariously through uh, your seven and a half years of traveling without an engine. Hey, my pleasure. Happy to talk to you. Well, that's it for this week's show. You can learn more about Marcus at routesofchange.org. I'm your host, Ben Shaw. Thanks for listening. You can reach me on Instagram at outthegatesailing or email me at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. I really enjoy hearing from listeners. Until next time, smooth sailing.